our companies collectively, they're going to spend right to the tune of about $700 million to make sure that broadband is available and working for the citizens uh, within their service areas for the citizens of South Dakota. Welcome to episode 369 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. If you live in South Dakota, you are no stranger to large swaths of rural landscapes. If you live in one of these rural landscapes, chances are good you're also no stranger to high-speed internet access. Even though much of the state is covered with ranch and farmland, cooperatives, tribal community and small ISPs, and a few municipalities are investing in high-quality connectivity for folks in South Dakota. Many of these providers are members of the South Dakota Telecommunications Association. This week, their Director of Industry Relations, Greg Dean, talked with Christopher about connectivity in such a rural state. Greg describes what the SDTA does for members and how their connections to local communities have influenced decisions and their ability to understand local needs. He discusses how working together has helped expand high-quality Internet access, funding, and how broadband is more important than ever in rural communities. Now here's Christopher and Greg Dean from the South Dakota Telecommunications Association. Welcome to another another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Uh, this is Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis. And I'm just starting the show for a second time after Greg and I are having this great conversation. So um, hopefully this won't seem a little bit stale to y'all. Uh, but I'll uh, introduce Greg Dean, who is the Director of Industry Relations for the South Dakota Telecommunications Association um, and is... Uh, going to share a lot of the really remarkable investments we've seen in South Dakota. So, Greg, I was hoping you could tell the audience, in addition to me, <laughs> now that I'm recording properly, um, what the SDTA does. What we do here at the South Dakota Telecommunications Association is we represent uh, the 18 companies within our membership, uh, both on a regulatory and uh, legislative uh, basis in terms of doing advocacy work collectively for them. And, and as I described to people, uh, these companies, these 18 companies, uh, really have long histories and long roots back into South Dakota. The way I describe them is they grew up as telephone companies, but I think virtually every one of them today will tell you that they are a broadband provider first and foremost. And that, uh, and while they are all all also video providers in some way, shape, or form, they will probably tell you that that landline telephone is is becoming a an increasingly smaller part of their business as the years go by. Now, when I see telecommunications association, I often think small, independent, private companies, uh, often cooperatives in the Midwest here. But uh, you have a, a different mix than most, I would say. So, you tell us about your your different kinds of members. Like I said, we've got 18 member companies in within our membership. The bulk of them, 12 of our 18, are member-owned cooperatives. We have uh, three municipal companies. The only three municipal companies in South Dakota are, are members of our association. We have two small commercial providers and then the tribal telephone authority up at Eagle Butte. And the um, I always like to, to note this because we cover a lot of municipal-type uh, providers, yours are the original telephone companies in the area. They're not municipalities that decided to get in later in the game. Correct, correct. These are all all municipal companies that have been serving serving their respective communities for a number of years. The the three in South Dakota are 
our Brookings, which is uh, home to South Dakota State University, a uh, community of about 20,000 over on the, well, right on the Minnesota border, uh, virtually. Uh, Beersford, which is a community of about, I would say, 2,000 to 2,500 people, about 30 miles straight south of Sioux Falls. And then the third is Faith, which is a small ranch community of about five, 600 people, uh, probably about, uh, oh, roughly 100 miles northeast of Rapid City. And your members aren't from the metropolitan areas of South Dakota. I mean, I, a lot of listeners aren't going to be familiar with the population distribution, but, but when we, we're going to be talking about the remarkable investments that, that your members have made, it's important to note that, that these are, this is the, the, most den, uh, the least dense areas of the state and not in the most dense areas of the state. These companies collectively serve about 70 six percent of South Dakota's landmass. It's right at about 60,000 square miles. Um, and actually, we just did a, a, a rough estimate in terms of the amount of population that these companies serve. And, and that estimate came up at about 280,000 people total that live within those 18 company service areas. So if you get right down to it, uh, that pencils out to about, well, about four and a half people per square mile. Uh, the biggest community that, that our companies serve is, is Brookings Municipal, uh, served by, by Brookings Municipal uh, Utilities. Uh, they actually, uh, their communications company actually goes under the name Swiftel. And then probably the second biggest community that our, that our companies serve is um, Brandon, which is a, uh, a bedroom community to Sioux Falls. It's about five miles east of Sioux Falls. And then it really tails off after that. Then you're really getting into communities of about oh, two to 3,000 people would be kind of the next tier. And then it really gets down into a whole bunch of communities that have populations of 1,000 or less and a whole lot of farm and ranch land in between those communities. And that is not significantly different from what I think uh, North Dakota um, has in terms of population. They've also had remarkable investment. Uh, but if you look south of yourself, where, where I think, again, you have similar uh, density patterns, uh, we don't see near the amount of investment in a, in a state like Nebraska. So I'm curious if you can walk us through what uh, has allowed your, um, your, your members to just make these kinds of investments, what motivates them in many ways. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is, and, and I give a lot of credit to the commitment and the foresight that these companies really have in terms of, of making sure that their, that their customers really have the best and, and most state-of-the-art kinds of services available. Uh, and most of those companies within, within our membership are member-owned cooperatives. And so, so they, are, they are run by, and, and the policies are really driven by board members who live throughout the service areas. All of our member companies are community-based providers. I mean, they really, they're all, I think all but one of them are headquartered in South Dakota. They, they really have a connection, both figuratively and literally, to the communities and the customers they serve. And so they, they really are committed and, and deeply woven into the, into the threads of, of South Dakota's, into the threads of South Dakota's fabric. The, the other thing beyond just that commitment and that investment and has really and has really allowed 
South Dakota to take advantage of uh, the the broadband connectivity that's available today is um, roughly 30 years ago, uh, a subset of our companies originally uh, saw an opportunity to begin interconnecting their their own unique networks. And what what really rose out of that is is an entity called South Dakota Network or or what's known today as SDN Communications. And the original the original thought behind the creation of SDN was really to bring back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, was really a way to to bring about uh, and give customers in South Dakota a choice of long national long distance services because uh, national long distance companies at the time were probably not going to bring their own facilities and try to deliver their own facilities into places like Kimball and, and Groton and, and Bison and other kinds of, of small communities where our companies are, are headquartered. But our companies saw an opportunity that if they, they jointly engineer their networks and bring basically and aggregate their customers, bring them all together to one point, in this case, uh, Sioux Falls, it made it much more attractive for the national long distance companies to to come into one point in South Dakota, and so as a result of that, we have we have a significant amount of of backbone fiber, uh, transport fiber throughout the entire state of South Dakota that really has morphed into a a, a really dynamic data delivery network, and and as I call it, is the interstate highway system of data delivery and really runs that kind of data connections out to and near to lots of small communities in South Dakota that probably would not have had that opportunity had it not been for the birth and creation and evolution of SDN communications. Well, I see that. I think think it was the report that you did last year notes that even as of then, 76% of their customers already had broadband at the minimum FCC defined uh, 25 megabits down and, and three megabits up. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing it's even increased more, but that's a sign of, of how deep they're going into the into the neighborhoods because I'm presuming a lot of them have been using DSL that they're switching over to fiber. Uh, that means that there's been a lot of investment to be able to drive DSL that fast. Yeah, uh, and the investment is again. It goes back to the commitment and and the foresight that these companies have. And and as you well understand, and I think people who listen to this podcast understand that delivering broadband out to the customers is, is no cheap service. And our companies are considered small uh, when it comes to national comparisons, but collectively, from the beginning of twenty. 13 through the end of 2017 in that in that five-year window our companies collectively invested right at about 400 million dollars into their capital networks and as we asked them what they projected to do in the four years following that from the beginning of 2018 through the end of 2021 they're projecting they're going to spend an additional $300 million collectively. So over that nine-year period, uh, our companies, again, albeit uh, the fact that they are relatively small by nature compared to a lot of other companies, uh, collectively, they're going to spend right to the tune of about uh, $700 million uh, to make sure that broadband is available and working for the citizens uh, within their service areas for the citizens of South Dakota. 
So with all that in investment, I would guess that a, a fair amount of that uh, comes from Washington, D.C. through the Universal Service Program historically. But I have no sense of, of how much. Like, What's attributable to that versus loans they're taking out? Like, How, how does this actually get financed in, in practice? There's no doubt, but what the, the Universal Service Fund is a key component of, of the investment that our companies have made. We, we did a comparison of the costs of putting a, a mile of fiber backbone in rural South Dakota versus versus uh, a metro area like Sioux Falls. And, sure. and in rural <laughs> South Dakota, putting a mile of backbone fiber costs about $16,000. Because of all of the extra construction and, and challenges of putting a mile of fiber in, in metro Sioux Falls, that number actually runs about $60,000 per mile. But again, if you look at the number of people in our service areas, it's a little over four people per square mile versus in Sioux Falls. That number is almost 2,500 people per square mile. So the return per resident um, in Sioux Falls for a mile of fiber um, is about, the average cost to put that in is about a little over $25 per resident. You get into rural South Dakota, and that number skyrockets to over $3,500 per resident. And so that's why the economics of, of delivering, delivering comparable services in rural America versus urban America um, really are bridged by the Universal Service Fund. And that's why it's such a key component of making, making broadband both available and affordable in, in places like like rural South Dakota. When you say uh, 16,000 per mile, I think some of the folks on my podcast would be curious how that's, is that basically just a machine that's plowing it directly in uh, with some sort of armored cable or is it just, you know, what sort of technology is that often using in the more rural parts of the state? You're going to need to acquire the, the fiber strands. Those are obviously engineered in, in such a way that, you know, they are, they're, it's a very technical uh, technical piece of equipment, and and I equate broadband to basically like delivering water, for example. I mean, you, you instead of putting a pipe in the ground that's going to have water running through it, you're going to put uh, a piece of fiber in the ground, and there's going to be data running through it. In the case of a water system, you can push water through that pipe, but unless you've got a pump every so often uh, on that water system, that water is only going to go so far, and it's the same way with electronics out in out in the field, out in out in rural parts of the country. And so, not only do you have to put that fiber in the ground to connect homes and businesses across rural South Dakota, you also have to put electronics to make sure that that signal gets a boost every so often. Otherwise, those speeds, the further out that you get will tend to degrade and and they're just not as certainly not as usable or as viable unless you continue to put those electronics further out into the country. And so there's a cost obviously associated with those as well. Right. Yeah, it's yet yet another um additional cost that you don't have in the in the city in the same way. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to note, I, mean, I think Minneapolis and St. Paul, if you get toward our urban areas, you're looking at $100,000 per mile, I think, or, you know, in, in some cases, um, even still larger and more dense cities, maybe um, per block uh, quite a bit. So 
The one of the questions I wanted to ask you was since you're the director of industry relations, I'm curious like what are the challenges that that are that your companies are, are wrestling with right now to be able to finish off these investments and keep providing that high quality service? Yeah, I think one of the challenges they're wrestling with is just continuing to to push that investment further and further out into out into the countryside. I mean, we we talked earlier about the fact that that uh, I, I think it's extraordinarily commendable that these companies will be at 90% plus connections of fiber to homes and businesses across their service areas within just a couple of years. But that still leaves another 7 to 10% or so that are that still need to be connected. And those are some of the most sparsely populated parts of the country. So the, so that will create a challenge. And I, I think the other thing that, that we as advocates for, for rural broadband providers have to continue to remind policymakers and elected officials that just because the, just because the fiber is in the ground and the electronics are out in the field, just because it's done once, doesn't mean that you're you're done. Doesn't mean you can stop because about the time that you're you've gotten to maybe to that hundred percent connection rate, that's about the time that you got to start over because some of those early early pieces of fiber that were put in twenty twenty or so years ago, maybe even earlier, uh, now comes the time that you got to start replacing some of that and the demand from the customer is such that that they're demanding more and more all the time. I I saw a presentation uh, not too long ago where one of our industry consultants pulled a slide from a presentation he used back in 2004, I believe, um, where he put in this presentation the projections that by 2018, people were going to be demanding 50 to 100 meg uh, <laughs> at their homes. He said, people thought I was crazy. They thought I was out of my mind that nobody would ever need 50 to 100 meg. Well, we know now that 50 to 100 meg is is kind of becoming the standard for for even a lot of people in the consumer uh, in the consumer side of the business. And so it won't be I, I don't think it will be too many years before we we're realistically talking about 500 meg or a gig uh, at at the consumer level, let alone at the business level. And those are the kinds of things and demands that are going to continue to drive more and more investment from companies to make sure that their customers are are suited and able to handle uh, and and deliver the kinds of services that those consumers are are uh, demanding in today's world. Well, I think this is, this gets to a a point that uh, can be a little bit contentious among some, which is this question of uh, at which point does it make sense for the public to invest in rural areas? And so I, I'm curious whenever you're hearing uh, people, whether it's policymakers or or you know if you just make the mistake of reading comments on a newspaper article or something like that, who are saying, well, if you choose to live out in South Dakota away from the the metro, then maybe you shouldn't have high speed internet access. Uh, you know, why is it smart that we have a universal service fund and the Connect America fund and things like that? I would say that in a lot of cases, it's probably more important to bring broadband kinds of services and high levels of connectivity out to rural areas. Uh, simply from the standpoint of broadband and the internet make the world smaller. And in a, in a state like South Dakota, and I'll give you a prime example, uh, whether it be for delivery of 
educational services to to small school districts, uh, especially in in very sparsely populated areas of, of South Dakota, or or telemedicine uh, kinds of facilities. I, I was just down in Sioux Falls and and toured uh, Aver- the Avera Health System is is really known as as a national leader in terms of delivering telehealth services to their clinics and hospitals across South Dakota. And they, they are able to connect emergency rooms uh, in critical care facilities all across, all across their footprint. They have a, a critical care uh, and an ER trained doctor, for example, in Sioux Falls who can, in essence, look over the shoulder of, of a healthcare provider who is in a was in a an ER room in um, someplace like Chamberlain or Wessington Springs or or a number of small town uh, a number of small town hospitals that can really advise that healthcare provider in that small town in a in a critical care situation in a trauma kind of situation. Um, so you've got another set of eyes and ears um, there saying, here's what you need to look for. And, and if you've ever traveled across South Dakota, once you cross the Missouri River at Chamberlain on I-90, it's about um, roughly about 200 miles to Rapid City. And in that 200 miles, and we can go 80 miles an hour on the interstate in South Dakota, so in that two-and-a-half-hour drive roughly, there literally is one hospital that's about – 10 miles off of the interstate, but there are, there literally are no hospitals on that interstate highway system for about a 200 mile stretch and access to even, uh, whether it be an ambulance or, or an emergency room. Those are the kinds of things that make critical care and broadband and the internet really make the world smaller and provide those kinds of services that, that allow these people who live out here uh, access to those kinds of those kinds of services, and, and I imagine that you have some stories we don't have enough time to get into. But there's probably a lot of people in South Dakota who are contributing mightily to the country um, and better able to because of high quality internet access, whether it's through markets or um, interesting ideas or whatever else they they might be doing. Yeah, there, there's all kinds of examples of lone eagles who are working from their homes for major corporations tourism kinds of businesses, precision agriculture, um, farmers accessing markets, uh, just all kinds of stories where there are all kinds of commerce and job opportunities for people who live in rural South Dakota that are able to live and work in small communities simply because they have access to high-grade internet services. Well, I'd like to, to wrap up by just noting um, three of my favorite things about South Dakota for um, many of the people who are listening who may not have um, had the the benefit yet. Um, and that's, of course, Badlands is is amazing. Um, wild horses running around. I mean, if you ever get a chance to come across those. And a town named after me, Mitchell, that has a corn palace. So I, I love driving across South Dakota because I see my name on every other sign in the eastern part. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mitchell's a wonderful community, and, and I'm sure – uh, you have a good namesake right there. The Badlands are just uh, are just phenomenal. If 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 any of the listeners get a chance to stop through, stop through and take a tour off of off of Interstate 90 for 
a couple of hours. There's some great hiking opportunities. The only thing I would suggest is is maybe going in the spring or the fall because if you're out in the Badlands in a in a 95 to 100 degree day, it, it may not seem quite as appealing. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time and working with me through the technical difficulties. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. That was Christopher and Greg Dean from the South Dakota Telecommunications Association. Learn about the organization at sdtaonline.com. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 369 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.